Good day and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. I sent Barry a little challenge this past week to do a 5k run and what I must say is, Barry, you look pretty good in a mask. I'm really glad to hear that, Chad, because we're going to be wearing masks for a while, so that's a really good thing to hear. Thank you. Yeah, so strange to see one of my friends wearing a mask, I suppose, as South Africa adopts their measures. Today, we've learned pretty much the same thing, and we'll certainly get into that. Loads of things to cover this past week, Barry, but how has that adjustment been to level four? Chad, it's a weird one. It doesn't feel that different. So obviously, we've seen a lot more people at the shops. There's a lot more people on the roads, and people are talking about various things. But we haven't felt that much different, certainly in my own life. Um, I think that level four is still quite a strict lockdown. Yep. And we have to wait to see. We've certainly heard rumblings throughout the country. Uh, people are getting a little bit anxious, getting a little bit nitty-gritty, and they want to get back to normal life. Yep. And so we have to wait and see how long it takes to get down those levels. But uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. And you're going to be going the same way, it looks like. Absolutely. There's uh, certainly a lot of patience required in this front, and uh, we'll certainly get into it. So let's dive deep in to what happened this past week. The week that was. All right, so let's uh, kick off the week that was, and Barry found a little bit of uh, development in one of his very, very passion fueled spaces that of cryptocurrency barry i'm sure you are frothing at the mouth to tell us about this one <laughs> yeah the difficulty with this one chad is that there's so little information and that's because it comes out of china and china likes to control the information that comes out of their country so this is very speculative at the moment and not no no one really has the real details but basically china has started reportedly started a major trial of a state-run digital currency Right, so they've been working on this digital currency for a few years, but we haven't really seen any real trials, any real experiments just yet. And it sounds like the trials have been started in four Chinese cities. The biggest one being Shenzhen and then a few of the smaller cities to try and see if a large digital currency could work like this in a, in a big economy like this. Right. And we haven't seen this kind of trial being tried in any big economies around the world. We've certainly seen smaller trials in some of the smaller countries. But when it comes to the global superpowers, we haven't seen it at all. And so this new digital currency has been like is now going to be trialed in these four cities and they're going to see if it works. Chad, as far as I understand, I don't actually think it's a cryptocurrency per se. Okay. It's not one of those things where it's decentralized. It's very much centralized. It's only given by the Chinese government. It's kind of a, a digital equivalent to a paper money system. Right. And so that's why it's a bit hard to understand what are they trying to achieve with this, right? So one of the quotes that I pulled out was one of the one of the spokespeople said, "A sovereign digital currency provides a functional alternative to the dollar settlement system, and blunts the impact of any sanctions or threats of exclusion, both at a country and a company level." And those are those are very vague reasons. It's hard to understand exactly what they're trying to achieve there. Obviously, around the world, everyone is starting to move to more digital currency, and and we, we've realized we've moved away from that gold standard. We don't have the paper to back these things anymore. A lot of it is just numbers on a spreadsheet or numbers in a database, and that de that determines wealth. And so, what I think this this is more analogous to is some sort of voucher or some sort of like new piece of of value that can then be used at various shops. And I know some government employees are going to get paid their salary in this new digital. Yeah digital currency and they're going to test it out and see how it works at the moment though it's pegged entirely one-to-one -to, -one to the chinese one and so that's right. it's very much pegged to the the normal currency itself and what this is going to do for for global forex or for chinese related um, investments it still, still remains to be seen. So we're going to have to watch this carefully, Chad, and see what happens with these trials. Really interesting. So as these new pieces of currency get introduced into the market, I suppose this would be likened to printing of, of new notes. Yeah, I think so. I, I think it's even, even more radical than that. It's like creating a brand new set of new notes. So it's not just increasing the supply of, 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 of currency, which is what the U.S. had to do in, with the COVID situation, yeah. but it's very much looking at what could the future of this currency look like. And... One of the big reasons, I think, for this is to try and get away from the reliance on dollars, right? So at the moment, the, the U.S. dollar is kind of the reserve currency around the world. And with the U.S. and China being in huge negotiations and huge trade wars across basically every piece of legislation and every industry, this might be a way to try and push the ball forward and try and figure out what is the new world of currency going to look like. And if it's not crypto, if it's not a Bitcoin situation that's more globalized and like very decentralized, but it's coming directly from the Chinese government, which is perfect for their kind yep. of brand, they will have to see what this does to kind of global investment and global flows throughout the economy. Now, I might be straight off the bat here, but this type of scenario really just points my mind to Zimbabwe, who a few years ago also introduced a sort of electronic type currency concurrently with 
the US dollar and, uh, you know, obviously various other forms like notes as well. Um, is this similar or is this something different? I think it's something different. I think in the Zimbabwe case, the reason they had to bring that new currency into play was because their currency, because of hyperinflation, was just absolutely worthless. And all of a sudden you had like these people were sitting with lots and lots of cash on their books, but weren't able to do anything with it. And so the US dollar had to come in and the digital currency had to come in to try and give some sort of stability to, to, to make sure the economy doesn't explode. In China, the economy is strong and they still have lots of growth. And, and the Chinese yuan is still very powerful, even, even when you compare it to the US dollar. And so I don't think it's the reasons are the, uh, the reasons are definitely not the same, but kind of the functionality and how it's going to work that might be quite similar. I know they've spoken about some big retailers such as McDonald's and potentially Starbucks being involved in those trials in China. And, and like kind of using that as a way to transfer value. And in my mind, it just represents a new kind of programming or a new sort of repackaging of what value means. And if the banks buy into this and are able to do this maybe more efficiently, you might be able to reduce the amount of cash transactions in the economy and trying to move everything onto a digital platform. Really, really interesting. And uh, we'll certainly have to see how the adoption to this uh, comes through. So obviously the government can introduce it, but like you said, if it doesn't have the buy-in of, of the banks and the buy-in of the people as well, um, especially given that cryptocurrency has this appeal because of that decentralized nature, this throws something directly into the face of, of all of those who, who want that system. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether they take up in that. What do you think, Barry? As somebody who's really passionate about the technology of cryptocurrency, do you think avoiding the use of blockchain technology and a, a public ledger is, is the right route to go for, for a government? I think it's too, too early to say. I think we haven't really seen a stable cryptocurrency that's able to act on a kind of a global level just yet. We've seen Bitcoin do reasonably well and kind of fill some of that gap. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. I still think we're a few years away. When it comes to the uptake from citizens, what China have in their advantage, and whether you like it or not, is that because of the kind of the state that they run, they can force a lot of things down the yep. throats of their citizens, right? So that, so that the way the Chinese Communist Party works is that they can force these things to happen. So if they decide all of a sudden that tomorrow this new digital currency replaces all of the cash that is already in, in circulation, that can happen pretty quickly because the citizens aren't able to really stand up like they are in, in other countries or other, other types of democracies and so that's an interesting that's why these things are always going to be tested in China first because they have the ability to run these sorts of tests without these these fights and without the freedom fights you'd have say in the US and so it almost becomes a, a testing ground for these new technologies and if it works it's going to be great for them if it doesn't work then who knows what happens fascinating well we'll have to certainly track how that one goes through now the next one that we wanted to chat about was something i found really interesting and we spoke about him i think last week or the week before and that is elon musk and his girlfriend grimes the dj um, who had a baby last week and they've now named it now barry have a have a go at pronouncing <laughs> that name <laughs> Oh, Chad, this looks like Greek hieroglyphics. Okay. Um, XAA12. XAA12 Musk. That's my best guess. Now, that is the name of a human, right? Um, really, really strange to see such a name really? like that. Really? His mom actually went through on, on Twitter and, and put this amazing message of X, welcome to the world, literally with the letter X as his sort of nickname, um, which is fascinating to see now. Elon went onto the Joe Rogan podcast and kind of clarified a little bit about the name and how it's pronounced. And so that AE symbol that you find between the X and the A12 is pronounced Ash, as far as I believe. And the A12 refers to Archangel 12, the precursor to SR-71, coolest plane ever, which I found really funny, really interesting. <laughs> Chad, don't you feel like we're being trolled? Like, I know people <laughs> have kind of confirmed the story and Elon Musk is confirming it, but based on his recent tweets and his recent behavior, do you not think there's a chance that his name's actually just Mark and they're having a lot of fun <laughs> trolling the internet? <laughs> oh, it'll be interesting to see if, if that is the case. And uh, we certainly are guilty. I mean, look at it, we're talking about it now. But but I mean, of all people, I think it is possible that this could be legit. That's why it's the perfect troll. because it's just, it's just crazy enough for Elon. It's like on that barrier <laughs> where we can just sort of believe it because Elon is a is a is a crazy person, and uh, it's it's it really is quite bizarre. But like you say, everyone is talking about it. It's this weird kind of game he's playing with everybody, and uh, Grimes is certainly not a normal person either. So they kind of they they match each other perfectly, yep. and uh, so we'll have to wait and see what happens. But if that's if that's the name of the child, I wish him or her the best of luck. <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure loads of teasing uh, ahead lies for, for that child. But certainly baby names over time have been going this really strange direction. Um, you know, certainly if you if you look at some of the celebs and, uh, you know, Kanye West and uh, the Kardashians as well with some of their names, really interesting. So moving on to some of the more serious stuff this past week. On Saturday, we had a bit of a briefing come through in the UK. And what I found was really, really interesting um, in that briefing. Obviously, it was the precursor to the all-anticipated briefing that happened on Sunday, which we will certainly be talking about, was cycling and the increased focus really on cycling. And I guess this is the government's long-term kind of strategy of of how we get out of this lockdown and how we get people moving again. Um, The minister really said that even if we go back to public transport, those vehicles will be limited to essentially 10% of what their original capacity was if you enforce those two-meter social distancing type rules. And so the government's going to have to really, really increase their reliance on people running to work, on people cycling to work, and, uh, you know, certainly looking at other options as well. So for me, they have now committed to spend two billion pounds on a cycling overhaul. Now, this includes making roads bigger, includes increasing, you know, cycle highways, super highways is what they call them here in the UK. And for me, that is just fantastic news to see as somebody who has cycled to work before in London. Um, it certainly is a great way to get to work and a great way to, to just get around and see the city. I think it's fascinating. I think that this is, this is one of those examples of how the world is going to look very different post-COVID to what it looked like before COVID, right? And this might be an opportunity, like you say, for the UK to rethink how they think about transport. If you look at the major European cities, a lot of them are very cycling first and very cycling heavy. If you look at Amsterdam, you look at Germany, sure. et cetera, like that. And the UK has got huge traffic issues, especially in London. Like yep. I know the traffic there is, is, is really bad. And so this is a great opportunity for people to rethink their, their, kind of their, their morning commutes and, and how they get around the city. And I think there's lots of health benefits. There's lots of kind of benefits of being able to get out in the fresh air and not be sitting on your on your butt all the time. Whether they can change the minds of the consumers and get people to change their habits, that yep. remains to be seen. But all these guys can do really is make the infrastructure possible for you to make those changes. So like you say, making it more friendly for cyclists, like changing some of those routes, changing some of those, those ways of doing things to ensure that if you do want to cycle to work and you do want to take advantage of that, then you have everything there and you've got no excuses. Absolutely. And one of the other things that I was really surprised to see is something that the government has been pushing back on for for quite some time, really. And that is these e-scooters, these sort of electric scooters. So if you go to Paris, uh, you can go on, download an app, I think it's called Bird, and pick up this e-scooter that has been charged already and pay essentially per kilometer. Now that kind of idea has yet to be piloted in the UK as well. And I suppose that's kind of as a result of the current laws that are in place. So where it classifies these e-scooters is kind of as a motor vehicle. So it kind of looks at them in the same way as a moped. And so the sort of restrictions in terms of it not having a number plate and, you know, all of the usual things that make mopeds roadworthy, um, that's where it's been falling short. And so these trials for e-scooters were supposed to happen next year. And these have now been moved forward to next month, something that I'm really, really happy to see. It's really cool to see. I think that e-scooters have been very controversial around the world. I remember when I went to San Francisco, they are very big in San Francisco, but it's very controversial because a lot of people, they'll, they'll use these kind of per kilometer basis and then they'll just yep. drop the, the scooter on the on the side of the road and block the path or like yep. put it in the middle of nowhere or they're using it for to go speeds they really shouldn't be going. Yep. And in places like San Francisco, you've got all these big hills and so they were very, 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 very powerful and very usable because you got, got up and down all these hills. It already makes a lot of sense as long as they make sure they can regulate it properly, like you say. And it isn't that weird like Goldilocks zone between a car and an actual bicycle. And so you've got to make sure you know what you're doing there. But I think it's the future, Chad. I think that for, for short-term travel, for like just down to the shops and back, or if you live really close yep. to your work, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it, anything to get cars off the road and kind of get free up those kind of resources, I'm all for it. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, given their size and just given the uh, convenience of them as well, in this post-COVID world where we're looking to find alternative means for transport, things that are not going to crowd up the roads 
and these things are not massive. And things that are, are also safe, I suppose that's kind of uh, subject to interpretation and subject to the rules that kind of get thrown down as well. But, but ultimately something that uh, is a feasible option for the future. And I, I really think these could be. Um, one of the other things that we have spoken about in the past weeks was also the move over to fully electric vehicles that uh, the UK have been planning within the next sort of 10 years or whatever the case is. And they've also pledged to spend 10 million pounds on car charging infrastructure. Also really positive to see. Yeah, that's an important piece of the puzzle. If you, if you want to do anything with these kind of renewable energy sources, you need to give the confidence to your consumers that they're going to be able to reach an, a charge or wherever they are. Yeah. And that's always kind of the, the, the trust thing. I want to be able to trust that even if I running low on electricity I can find something and so that infrastructure I think is very important even before you get to the cars themselves if you've got the infrastructure in place it opens up all sorts of opportunities for this sort of thing and uh, that's the kind of move we need to make away from those non-renewable sources and towards more electric Absolutely, absolutely. Well, moving on to the long-awaited and long-looked-forward-to, really, announcement from the Prime Minister Boris Johnson on Sunday. We obviously have now had that. Uh, we're recording this on Monday night, and I believe that there's actually a press conference going on in the background, so hopefully nothing we talk about is out of date by the time we publish this episode. <laughs> um, but essentially, this was a teleprompter-type briefing that we saw come out of 10 Downing Street on Sunday night. And I must be honest, I myself was really looking forward to this briefing. I somehow thought there was loads of speculation going about and lots of talk about these kind of social bubbles and I really thought we'd get to a stage where you know we can actually start to feel a little bit normal again and within you know within reason and to be honest all of the announcements in my mind were, were fairly vague and, and they sort of left a lot to be desired for so let's kind of go through it and let's mention what was announced so obviously he stuck to that five test parameter that the government has set out in terms of when each of these measures is going to take place and that's kind of been the key message that the government has been uh, reiterating over the last couple of weeks but what they announced is that they're going to be putting into place a COVID alert system so there'll be an alert level that is determined by the R factor and the number of cases so if you haven't heard of it the R factor is essentially looking at the exponential influence of the spread of this disease so at the moment uh, as far as we believe it's between 0.5 and 0.9 so that means that every 10 people are going to only affect five, essentially. And you've got kind of now got that level where it's not going to go exponentially out of control. But as soon as that R increases above one, you can really easily see how if 10 people get it, essentially 15 people are going to get it. And that obviously creates that, uh, that compounding effect. And, and that's really what we were all avoiding. So essentially, there's going to be five levels. Level one is where the disease is not present in the UK at all. And level five is the most critical. Now, the interesting thing for me here is that he announced that we have been in level four. So it's kind of been implied that we've been living in level four already. And obviously, as we've looked at the lockdowns across the world, we've seen the UK's one as a little bit more lenient. And this kind of makes sense, Barry. It's really clever messaging because it gives you a little <laughs> bit of the dopamine hit. Oh, we're not at the worst. We've actually made some progress. It's really clever PR and it's it's really good marketing. And it's it's, it's exactly what is needed in these situations is to try and give the, give the people the sense that we've made some progress. Yeah. We're not at level five. And that's, that's something to celebrate and I think that the fact that the UK seems to have hit fingers crossed some sort of peak and they're yeah. starting to get the un things under control that makes a lot of sense and so I think that's a masterclass there for <laughs> Boris absolutely well now we're going to be moving into level three so there's another bit of dopamine that uh, you know now good better times are ahead and I suppose this is I suppose where a lot more was expected and that is what does level three constitute so if we dig into those kind of like what you said Barry it doesn't feel too different so the message is work from home if you can and if you can't you have to go into work. So this is trying to get some sectors of the economy going again. But this is not really different to the previous messaging. Uh, the only thing here is, I suppose, the extra emphasis on, on trying to go to work if you can. And so that's a little bit of a change, but not really different to the key messaging we saw before. However, from Wednesday, we will now be allowed unlimited exercise. So previously, you could exercise for sort of an hour a day. Now you can literally spend as long as you want outside in the fresh air exercising they have added that you can go to the park to sit and rest and tan is what he even said so a lot of people will be very happy about that but like i said that's <laughs> not too different i mean if you were able to be outside even for an hour a day 
now you can still go outside just for a little bit longer. One of the things that he has clarified subsequent to that announcement in Parliament today is that you can meet one member from another household provided you are social distancing. So I suppose this is kind of that little bubbling thing where if you are having a few people going to work, the government is prepared to take a little bit of risk there that you know you can still meet one person provided you're keeping your two meters distance, etc. The other thing that he clarified is that you can now drive as far as you'd like just not into other nations where restrictions may be different. And so this is also something that Barry, we will definitely be discussing, is that there appears to be in the UK different measures across the four nations, which is really, really interesting. And we'll certainly discuss about that. Um, one of the things for people who don't adhere to the social distancing measures, especially in the parks, etc., is that fines will be increased. So these will now start from a spot fine of £100, to £3,600, which is certainly not small change. So just on those measures, Barry, what do you think at face value? Oh, Chad, it's, it's hard. It's very similar to what I felt when the South Africans, uh, when we kind of changed our lockdown restrictions. It's hard to get a sense as to what is what is allowed and what isn't allowed yep. now. Like it was very clear beforehand. You had a very black and white situation. You knew exactly what was <laughs> happening. But these kind of statements can be interpreted in four or five different ways depending on how you read it. And it's the same thing we're dealing with here in South Africa. We have, we have the same sort of vagueness sometimes and a lot of the debates and a lot of the fights and a lot of the kind of the social media shaming comes out of people misinterpreting or, or just interpreting different ways. Yep. And so I think it makes it, it makes sense to me, but how it's going to be enforced, how it's actually going to act out, are people actually going to stick to that? So for example, to meet one person from an additional household, that seems like a slippery slope. How do you how do you make sure that you're only meeting the one person and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's interesting. I think that uh, we have to wait and see what happens and do the citizens actually abide by this? And how do they enforce these sorts of things? If you're going to be start finding people for this stuff, what constitutes that fine, right? How, it's, how do you actually make sure you're giving some sort of consistent enforcement? It's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, it certainly, certainly will be interesting to see. And just in terms of that vagueness, I think the key thing that a lot of people are talking about that we haven't even mentioned is the change in the slogan. So like you mentioned, PR is obviously crucial when it comes to these types of announcements and certainly in terms of the perception that the public are going to give these types of messages. And so the key message that we've had in the past was stay home. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And that's now changed to stay alert. Now, Barry, what do you take from stay alert? That, that, that is a great point, Chad. I think it, it's a very key piece of messaging that. And, and that really does show the change, right? And I think, it, I think it's a great way to think about it because I don't know about you, Chad, but how many, what percentage of the population do you think actually have read these regulations quite carefully and watched Boris's speech and are really taking this seriously? A lot of people will just go by the slogan itself. Yeah. And stay alert might mean to them, I can go and see my family and my <laughs> friends again as long as I wear my mask and I don't hug and kiss them and I don't do all of that. Um, and so, yeah, stay alert certainly is a very, very different message to stay at home. It's it's much weaker and much, much vaguer. And so only time will tell as to whether it's the right decision, but we have to get people back to work. So I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it definitely is interesting. And we'll certainly see how people take on these announcements and uh, take on these requirements, really. One of the other things that we've finally just heard a little bit of a peep from the government that hasn't been mentioned really at all is face masks. Where does the government stand on it? Um, because, you know, it's really just not surfaced here in the UK. And it's now been announced that the government advised people to wear a facial covering when outside the home. Now, it's been emphasized by Boris today in Parliament that you should not wear medical face masks, obviously, as these are needed uh, by those on the front line. Um, but this is really interesting to see a little bit of certainty and a little bit of a, a stance uh, actually coming through from the government on this particular topic. And uh, on the back of that, we've seen a great little resource that I actually found on the BBC of how to make your own masks. Now, some of these suggestions are really great um, from novice level all the way to pro. What I mean from that, well, you can actually turn a t-shirt into a mask if you'd like, bandana, t-shirt, etc. Or you can actually, they give you full guides and full plans really to, to stitch one together. So so what do you think in terms of just getting a bit of clarity on, on what that policy is? 
Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's a global trend we've seen. There's been so many debates about is a mask worth it? And I've been I've been flabbergasted <laughs> by the, the amount of disagreements around this. And it seems in the last kind of couple of weeks we've all kind of we've appreciated the fact that everyone needs to wear masks. And it might be for a while. It might be for the rest of the year, right? And we have to get rid of that stigma. Like in, in Asia, they don't have that stigma. They're more than happy to wear the mask because yeah. they do that normally, right? That's kind of a normal thing. When I went to Japan, like that was exactly that. There a lot of people wearing masks, not because they're sick, not because of any of that, but just because that's yeah. how seriously they take their hygiene and so in the western world we have to get rid of that stigma and so that's what these politicians are trying to do is remove that stigma and get everyone to wear masks what i do see chad and i've seen it already is that these masks are going to become fashion statements and i've already <laughs> seen it happening right and it's going to be how cool is your mask like what kind of statement are you making with your mask do you have your captain america mask or your louis vuitton mask or whatever the story is and so i see that being the next fashion trend and i think all of our instagram models we were chatting about last week i think they're all going to have very fancy masks going forward <laughs> that's such an interesting point because i think we're yet to see a, a big brand actually release masks in terms of their fashion lineup obviously you in south africa barry you can't go and buy things online um, but here in the uk it's very different all of the e-commerce stores are, are thriving really every single person is buying as much as they can online and i'm shocked that we haven't actually seen some of that innovation um, especially when you know a lot of people are going to be looking for those kinds of products right now i think you're dead right I'm sure there's lots of designers who are working day and night to get that right, Chad. And I, I think we're only days or maybe weeks away from the very first runway walk where those models are <laughs> showing the masks. So watch this space. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's going to really be weird to look back a decade later and, and look at the fashion trends like we do with you know our previous generations. Um, that's going to be the one that we have gone through. Uh, one of the other things that was announced that a lot of people would be happy about is to see some of the professional sporting leagues potentially get started right at the beginning of June. Now, it has been clarified that this would have to be behind closed doors. And so I think that is really going to be quite an interesting phenomenon. But obviously, with technology the way it is, everyone can tune in from their homes. This is really good news to me, Chad. I think that sport is something I've really missed during this lockdown period. And so if we can get sport back on the on the calendar, that'd be amazing. Um, I don't know how safe it is. I still think it's a bit strange to be putting the whole squads together and whatnot. And even, even if you're not playing with fans, it's, it still needs to be very carefully monitored. But I, for one, am all for it. And I can't wait to watch some sport again because that's what I've really missed during this lockdown period. Absolutely, as well. And uh, yeah, hopefully we get it back soon. I'm sure a lot of people will be very happy just to have that extra bit of entertainment, um, which we, we certainly all need at this time. Now, just to go back to that point, Barry, that I mentioned, in, in terms of the, the bit of tension that we've seen across the four nations, you know, certainly interesting to see the Prime Minister adopting that change in message from stay at home to stay alert. And out of all of the other three nations, none of them are willing to take that on. I find that fascinating. Yeah, it is interesting. I think that all of these guys are trying to figure out where does their jurisdiction lie and like how how different can their planning and their kind of their messaging be. I think every country has to deal with it on a case by case basis and on merits. So looking at their unique numbers, their unique kind of um, situation, and, and making a plan based on that. Obviously, we've 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 stopped as much of the cross boundary travel as possible, and so hopefully you can just focus on your unique little towns and cities yeah. and do the best for that um, I'm not an expert in those in, in Scotland or Wales or Ireland or any of that um, but it's, it's interesting that they do have a different message at least for the moment yeah yeah certainly is moving on to the next thing obviously we've been chatting about how well South Korea are handling the pandemic and how they've managed to get those numbers underway and I've kind of just taken on that message from you Barry without looking really too deeply myself in terms of what physically <laughs> they've actually been doing um, but you've gone in and kind of pulled out a case uh, of, of somebody who's arrived in the country and what they had to go through and what kind of measures they were faced with. So why don't you talk us through it? Yeah, Chad, this blew my mind because like you say, we kind of just, we, we kind of skated over it. Like, oh, they're, they're doing really well. Like, like <laughs> good good job. Well done. We did not realize, that, well, I did not realize at least, and I think I speak for a lot of us, yep. that d we didn't realize the kind of the scale of how, how seriously they took this and how they were able to manage those numbers like it is. And so I found this, this tweet thread from an American who's living in South Korea and recently like went into South Korea by a plane and he kind of walked through the experience and shows you how seriously they take this. And when I read through this, Chad, you're going to realize that, that our level four, our level three here in, in South Africa or in the UK is nothing compared to what they're doing in South Korea. So let me just read through it and we can chat as we go. First thing, upon arrival at the airport, they take your temperature and ask if you've experienced any symptoms. If you have, they move you to a separate area and give you a coronavirus test straight away. 
If you haven't got any symptoms, they take you to another area and interview you. They also install ankle bracelets, Chad. So they basically treat you like a prisoner. So they put that ankle bracelet on you. After that, you're required to install an app on your phone that enables location tracking all the time. So not just within app, like literally all the time they know where you're you're located. And you have to self-report your symptoms in the app twice a day. So twice a day, you get a little notification saying, cool, how do you feel? Do you have any symptoms? You have to report yes or no and, and how you feel. This goes on for 14 days once you get into the country. Right. In those 14 days, Chad, you are not allowed to leave the quarantine dormitory or your home if you've self if you've chosen to self isolate at home. So say you're a South Korean national and you've got a home in South yep. Korea, you can choose to go and isolate in your own home. If you don't have a home in South Korea, you go to a, a quarantine dormitory, which sounds terrifying, <laughs> and you're not allowed to leave that dormitory for those 14 days. If you break that quarantine, so somehow if you think, even though I've got an ankle bracelet, I've got a tracking <laughs> phone, and I'm supposed to be in this dormitory all the time. People have tried to break it, and you're fined ten thousand dollars and potentially face jail time. So, real, real punitive measures there on if you try and leave that quarantine. Also, his wife had her location checked twenty-seven times in a three-day span. So basically, it's almost like you're in witness protection, and they're making sure that you haven't gone anywhere, you haven't disappeared, you you're doing your thing. Um, and they have caught some guys who've been able to leave their phone at home and try and go out yeah. and explore, right? During that self-isolation, Chad, you cannot have any contact with anyone, basically. And they give you special bags to throw your rubbish away where people in hazmat suits will come and collect your trash on request. I'm not making this up. I promise you this is not, this is real. Okay. In this quarantine period, you are also assigned to a caseworker who's responsible for making sure you're following all the orders. So this is a government-mandated official, some sort of health worker, that will call and text you to make sure you're okay. As well as, I really love this, sending you care packages (laughs) that include food, gloves, masks, sanitary pads, toiletries, etc. So you get treated relatively okay in your quarantine dormitory. All right, so that's kind of the, that's the quarantine period of the first 14 days. Now, if you say say you're not in quarantine, say you're in normal kind of um, normal South Korea. If there's a new coronavirus case in your area, so it's in your district or in your city, you'll get a public safety alert on your phone to tell you about the person who has the disease and provide updates as they receive them, right? So you know exactly when there's a new case because you get a notification. His family of four, so the guys write this uh, thread, went and got tested, and the four of them were tested within 10 minutes, so quick and easy, and got the results seven hours later. Seven hours later, right? Any place in South Korea which has lots of traffic, so grocery stores or any kind of essential kind of places where people do come into contact with one another, they have temperature monitors installed so they can monitor everyone's temperature as they're walking around the store, right? So again, looking for problems. (laughs) The most crazy thing about all of this, right? So they still are wearing masks, washing hands, doing everything around the world. There are no protests about the anti-freedom stuff here. There's no one worried about the invasion of privacy. It's kind of like they've just accepted that this is required to address this pandemic and they're just willing to go along with it. And so obviously that's a cultural thing and that's kind of how they do it. But that means that the government pretty much knows exactly who has coronavirus yeah. because they are testing so incredibly like at mass scale. They're doing all of these kind of measures to ensure things are going right. And so they're able to be pretty confident that they know exactly where the virus is. And so, Chad, I'm curious about your thoughts as to this whole thing. It's it's, it's such a strict measure, but they, they really do have the best data in the world because of all these measures. So what do you think? Yeah, I'm fascinated by it. Like you, like you said, Barry, I also kind of just took on the messaging without looking at the actual measures. And it's staggering. This seems to be like textbook stuff. I don't see how you could go more intense than these types of measures um but like you said i i like the fact that you know they they still try and treat you a little bit well in terms of the care packages (laughs) you've got somebody who's sort of assigned to you and i suppose checking on mental health and that kind of stuff as well which is really important imagine just arriving in a country and being thrown into a quarantine dormitory which does sound really really strange and you know at least you have somebody who's there as as a kind of a contact person um which is fantastic i mean like you said i think they've been really effective in in terms of what they've achieved and so for anyone to really criticize this and and say it's too much or too excessive or whatever the case is i mean clearly it's been really effective and and i suppose on the back of this they could probably get to a more normal type of living situation a lot sooner than the rest of the world 
this is exactly the point, Chad. If you if you chat to some of the guys who maybe you've gone through the 14 days, you finally get the go-ahead to like go back into normal life. They're saying that life in South Korea is returning almost to normal pretty quickly because yeah. they're able to do it. If you have the right data, if you know exactly where the virus is, you know exactly who has it, and you can track that like to the GPS coordinates, that really does mean you can get back to life and you can get people back to work and whatnot. Because all it means is that if someone gets a virus, they then go and self-isolate and they go and do their thing and the rest of the city can keep running and the rest of the country can keep running. Obviously, it's much easier to do this in a small country than a large country. And obviously, sure. with the cultural kind of understanding, everyone kind of buys into it. And that's that's just how the how they do it. But it still is a fascinating look into some mm. of the measures that, the, that some countries around the world are doing. And I would imagine that there's similar things in places like Singapore and places like Taiwan and whatnot. When they, when they have the kind of the, the ability as a government to mandate all of this stuff. If you were to try and come up with these things in a Western democracy, like a UK or a US or something like that, <laughs> you would have so many protesters and so many riots, you wouldn't yeah. know what to do with it, right? And maybe that is why the Western world is struggling so much, whereas Asia managed to get it right. And whether that's right or wrong, it's hard to say, yeah. but it is a fascinating comparison between the two and, and looking at how they dealt with a very, very difficult issue. Completely, completely agree. And uh, I certainly think it's going to be a fascinating case study to look back on in years gone by. Really interesting. And thanks for, for bringing that one to our attention, Barry. One of the other things that we saw this past week was obviously we've been talking about airlines and how they've been coping throughout this time. And uh, one of the big ones, Air France, has been awarded a 7 billion euro French aid package, um, which actually had to go through the EU to get approval. And because this guarantee that they backed covers 90% of the loan and the EU actually actually has set a parameter of 70%, um, you know, before approval actually is required. Obviously, a lot of cash and this cash is needed for liquidity purposes. Um, a lot of people saying loads of airlines are really starting to look at their kind of run rates and really looking at the date at which they go bankrupt. It's one of those industries that is going to look incredibly different after this because, like you say, everyone is struggling. And this sounds relatively similar to the SAA situation, right? You've got this giant Air France, this giant, giant corporation. It really does epitomize the French airline industry, and it is their major airline. And all of a sudden, they need a huge amount of aid, and they can't be the only one. Yeah. And so where is this money going to come from, and how, as an airline, do you even begin to plan? Chad, if you're sitting as a CEO of an airline right now, and you're trying to guesstimate what your runway is, how do you even know? Yeah. How do you know when travel is going to go back to normal, right? You can have some sort of model saying, oh, maybe in three months, time we might be back to 60% capacity but you got no idea no you got no way to you got no way to justify like do you keep your employees on do you retrench them early to try and save on that liquidity yeah. how do you deal with it from economic perspective and I don't think there's any good data out there, any good predictions, because there's so much uncertainty still. Even if you fix corona, even if you get like the cases under control, I still think that the travel industry as a whole is going to have a huge hit from this because people are not going to want to travel as much as they used to. And so who knows what an airline industry is even going to look like in a few months. Absolutely. And I think one th interesting thing to add there is one of the conditions of this uh, package was that Air France continues to be a good customer, and that's kind of in apostrophes, to Airbus, yeah. the, the manufacturer, obviously, who's also going to really struggle on the back of this. Yeah, it really goes throughout the value chain, right? So it's not just the airline providers, it's not just airline companies, it's the whole industry around them that kind of service that airline industry. And it's it's very similar to, to if you think about the retailers, like if a retailer all of a sudden can not pay its debts yeah. it doesn't just affect that company and those employees it's all the suppliers the producers the procurement the the workers etc it really has ripple effects throughout the economy and so i think that we haven't seen the worst of it yet the, the economy is still going to be under severe stress for a long time and that the travel industry is unfortunately up for the worst of it absolutely well let's move on to our next segment stuff i found interesting all right, stuff I find interesting this week. We start off with something that I find really, really endearing, and I really love it. The German football club, Borussia Dortmund, is probably one of the biggest football clubs in Germany, and they've really got an amazing fan base. And over the last few years, they've kind of started to compete with Bayern Munich and really put their name up there to try and win the Bundesliga. They've been trying to figure out, obviously there's no football right now, the fans aren't able to get into the stadium, there's no games going on. They've figured out, how can we how can we involve our fans? How can we keep people the morale up and whatnot? So basically what they did was they sent out messages to their fan base and said, listen, for $20, you can get yourself a cardboard cutout of you, Chad, placed in one of the seats in the stadium. 
right? So for $20, we're going to print a cardboard cutout of Chad mm. and put him in his favorite seat, E24, in the Borussia <laughs> Dortmund Stadium. And if you look at the if you look at the photo, they have now they've twelve thousand people have signed up for this and, and sent their twenty their twenty dollars in, and four thousand five hundred have already been placed. And so there's an amazing photo of one part of the stadium here with four thousand five hundred cardboard <laughs> cutouts of these various fans sitting in the stadium. I think it's amazing, Chad. Oh man, it's such an amazing thing. And as soon as you put this on, I just I just couldn't believe it. The the image, like you said, is certainly one to be noted. And certainly give a quick Google after this. Um, because yeah, it's just so interesting to see all of these cardboard cutouts in real life <laughs> seats. Um and so I, I suppose it's one way to 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 give a bit of a vibe and, and really make it feel like there's people in the stadium, but ultimately also raise a bit of money, which I suppose is also part of this. And uh, I, I mean they're not gonna be raising a load of money because if you look at the size of a, a cardboard cutout and you know the cost of putting that together i mean i'm not sure if you've ever printed something that kind of size barry but it's it's not cheap no certainly not i think it's more a brand building exercise i mean it gets us talking about it and yeah. it really gets the fans involved what i'm really looking forward to is when they start playing again and they can't have real fans but they've got a whole stadium full of cardboard cutouts i'm really looking forward to that because that's going to be look look really weird when you watch a live football game say between Bayern munich and borussia dortmund and there's no sound <laughs> but the, the stadium is full with all these cardboard faces. <laughs> Barry, just before this episode, we were actually talking about Black Mirror. And uh, I don't know if anyone has watched it. That That's a great little series on Netflix, um, really just about how dark the world could go, um, you know, if technology kind of takes control. And one of the episodes was a guy who spent this life confined in this kind of a cell, really. And he was in this one particular building. His job was essentially to go onto a bicycle and generate energy and in his downtime he gets back into his cell and and sort of tunes into a game show um where essentially he is like a cardboard cutout in this game show as if he was there and so this almost feels a little bit to me like that have you seen that episode barry <laughs> i have i have black mirror is one of my favorite shows and so i love those things so it's an interesting parallel to draw imagine you could put like a little gopro on your cardboard cutout <laughs> and watch the game from your cardboard cutout's perspective you the, the opportunities are endless yet <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we certainly going to have to get inventive um, as time goes by. But if anything is to be said about that potential of, you know, getting sports going back in the 1st of June, it'd be cool to see some of this other stuff. One of the other things I found interesting this past week is a little video clip that I saw on the BBC about a robot dog enforcing social distancing rules in a Singapore park. Now, I had a little watch of this. Barry's quite familiar with this particular model of robot. Um, but for me, it's absolutely terrifying where you've got this little robot running around this park with cameras on its head and kind of going up to people and saying, keep one meter distance. Um, and so as we were talking about the measures in, in Asia, Singapore also has quite hefty fines um, and even imprisonment as well if you fall foul of those regulations. And so it's really interesting for me to see this kind of technology being rolled out to actually go on and enforce this, these kind of measures. Yeah, this is one of those things you have to go and watch the video because when you see this robot in action, it really does change the way you think about it. And I think that a lot of us have are a little bit complacent about the the kind of where robotics is in the real world. We yep. watch a lot of Hollywood movies and we see a lot of sci-fi stuff and we kind of assume, oh, that's far in the head, like that, that kind of robot's not really possible. When you watch the kind of robots, especially from Boston Dynamics, which I think are the guys who made this one, like you say, Chad, you start to get a little bit worried. You're like, oh, wow, they're way further than I thought they were. Yeah. And uh, this technology moves fast. And so when you see this happening, it really does open your eyes to what could the future of robotics be and how is it going to interact with us in a normal day-to-day -day lives. So at the moment, it must be very strange if you're in that park and that robot comes and talks to you. I'm sure they've got a range of reactions from different people depending on your personality and depending on how terrifying it is because I think it'd be quite scary if you're not aware of it or if you don't know it's there and all of a sudden it pops out of nowhere, Chad. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the interesting part for me on this whole topic is that it's currently being trialed for two weeks to see how people respond. And for me, that bit is interesting because... You know, do the government really actually care how people are going to respond if they actually just throw this thing in the park anyway? What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, who knows? Who knows? I, I for one, I love these kind of experiments because, for example, my thesis topic is, is on a little bit of this and thinking about how robots and AI is going to interact with humanity. So selfishly, I kind of want to see what's going to happen. <laughs> but I think if I was actually in Singapore and I was actually interacting, I might have a different view. So I don't know, Chad. We have to wait and see. But this dog thing is is quite scary. I won't lie. Yeah, really interesting. Certainly do go and check out that video um, after this podcast if you have a moment. Now, the last thing that I found interesting this past week, I actually sent a little video to to Barry was that there was a testing center, coronavirus drive-through testing center right outside my window where I literally looked out the window and saw army guys kind of just walking around in this <laughs> empty sort of parking lot and cars really piling up to get tested. Now you see this kind of thing on the news and we all know that they're throughout the UK, they've got these drive-through testing centers and it's core really to the strategy of, of getting up to that 100,000 tests per day. But seeing one at that kind of distance, it really just hits home and really, really eerie stuff. Yeah, it, it really made me kind of blink and think twice because when you see that video, Chad, it kind of looked like the entrance to an army base. That's kind mm -hmm. of what it felt like. And so you see this video and it really does look a bit a bit strange and eerie. And, and to think that that is right outside your guys' place <laughs> is, is very bizarre. I think that these drive-through testing centers, like you say, have been so crucial and such an important piece of all of this, trying to ensure we minimize that contact as best we can. Yeah. And to have your nasal swabbed through the window <laughs> of your car seems to be the best bet we've got. Um, but it certainly is strange, Chad. And I, I, I know you, you, you kind of hesitated a little bit because you're like, do you really want a drive-through testing center right outside your house? I don't know if you want, I don't know if you do. Well, this is the thing. I, I kind of felt a little bit silly about that because, you know, there is no proof that it, it is airborne and kind of travels through the air. But it is the natural question. If, if I'm going on a run and I run past this sort of center and there's people piling <laughs> up there who think they have it, you know, it, it really does throw an extra dynamic to, um, to just trying to, you know, stay away from it and just trying to get by, I guess. But I certainly found it quite interesting. Shall we move on, Barry? Let's do it. Looking ahead. Okay, looking ahead this week, we are talking about the future of cinema, Chad. The future of going to the big screen, getting your giant slash puppy, <laughs> your giant thing of popcorn, yep. and enjoying the latest blockbuster on the big screen. And so I saw a really interesting article that I think will lead us into that discussion. Basically, in the US, right, all cinemas are, clo are closed. And I think it's around the world because yep. there's just too much risk there for coronavirus. So all the cinemas are closed. And so these these giant production houses who spend millions and millions of dollars on getting movies ready and ready for release and all of the marketing and all of the work that's gone into it, all of a sudden they don't feel like they can release their movies because people can't go and see them, right? And so they're trying to figure out how do we adapt to this coronavirus thing? And so one of the biggest production companies is NBC Universal, and they decided to run a test with their brand new Trolls World Tour movie. Now, I don't know if you've seen Trolls, Chad, but it's an amazing little animated Absolutely. movie with, uh, I think, Justin Timberlake, I think it was, yep. and Anna Kendrick in the yep. beginning. And uh, really like a real good feel-good show. Like, I, I really loved the first one. Yep. And this is kind of the, the follow-up, Trolls World Tour. And they decided that instead of going to cinemas at all, they're going to go directly to video-on-demand platforms instead of that normal cinema release. Yeah. So, so they kind of are going to flout their contracts and kind of flout what they, what they said they were going to do and went straight to video-on-demand. And in the first three weeks, Chad, they made $100 million worth of revenue. Yeah. And to compare that, to give you some sort of sense, the original Trolls made $116 million of revenue in the same time frame in a normal cinema release. So it's very comparable and very, very comparable to what it would have made um, prediction-wise in the actual cinemas. And so what happened then was they kind of realized, oh, this actually is a <laughs> decent idea. Like we, we don't have to go through all the, the pressure and like the, the stuff of this opening weekend and yep. trying to get people to the box office and all the, the work that goes into trying and market people to get them to the cinemas. And so the NBC Universal CEO made some comments about how successful this was and suggested they might go this way in the future. Hmm. Maybe they go straight to video on demand streaming. And that makes a lot of sense. We've seen the success of Netflix and the success of these guys. Sure. Maybe it makes sense to go straight there. And then the cinemas fought back because they realized, <laughs> hold on a minute, if you guys cut us out completely, we have no business. And Definitely. so AMC, which is the biggest cinema chain in the world and specifically in the USA, were horrified by this. And they released a statement saying that they were going to boycott all Universal movies in the wow. future and they wouldn't screen any of them in the US, Europe, or the Middle East. Wow. So obviously a huge, huge deal there and a big kind of statement to say, listen, if you're not going to use us, you, none of your movies are going to get any cinema time. 
And so it's really is a, f- a fight to the, of the heavyweights here to try and figure out what is the future of this medium going to be? And are people still going to go to the cinemas if, if this is kind of the way that production companies might be going? And so, Chad, I want to put some questions to you. Is like, what, is, what do you think the future is? Have they become too expensive? Like, do you still go to the cinema and do you still find value in the expensive movie tickets? And especially when the quality of production is so similar now, like a Netflix movie or a kind of an Apple TV movie looks amazing. Like, there's no difference in production quality, whereas there used to be a big difference between TV and movies. In looking at all of this, Chad, what do you think is the future? So firstly, just in terms of trolls, I, I certainly loved the first one myself as well. And <laughs> I don't know, just the, like you said, the feel-good nature of it, where you kind of go through this journey of a guy who, you know, is, is a sad troll um, and all of the trolls are happy. Um, and so, you know, to try and get this troll to be happy again, uh, just a great little story. So if, if anyone hasn't seen it, certainly, you know, do check it out. It's not just for kids. Adults actually enjoy and, it as well. And the music is great. The music is world-class as well. Absolutely. With Justin Timberlake and Anna Kendrick, you, you can't go wrong. Um, in terms of the future of, of cinemas and the future of, of movies, I think this is a huge statement that AMC made. And I kind of think they're playing a bit of poker here, really. And it might not work out for them. If they say to Universal that they're not going to air any of their movies, um, and Universal do end up going the video on demand route, um, how many extra providers are there um, to throw these cinema chains content to keep them alive and viable and you're completely right Barry the the sort of quality that we're seeing come through on video on demand internet is now not as big of an issue around the world as it once was and so we can stream movies in 4k resolution without waiting at all that a couple of years ago would have been insane you would have waited sort of hours to download movies beforehand that said I still have found myself going to the cinema and I suppose it is kind of just because of the scale of it all just because of the size of the screens the experience of going through and, and getting your popcorn and getting your slush which you know i suppose you could recreate at home but you know it's going to require a little <laughs> bit of space and a little bit of infrastructure investment but that said i actually saw this trolls world tour movie pop up on my apple tv and, and it's certainly on my list um, and i'm not surprised that it was successful throughout the world people are at home looking for entertainment and what better way to actually get some cinema grade stuff and without having to wait for it to pass its you know normal couple of months as it does in the big screens before you can actually see it at home um, I thought it was a great experiment and I'm glad it was successful for them Um, and I'm excited that this might be the new normal I think cinemas are too expensive I think that the fact that everyone gets to take their cut throughout the line um, and you can actually rent something at home for a whole lot less does make it a lot more appealing and it also really makes the fact that you can invest in some good quality tech some good quality sound bars all of that kind of stuff which really really makes the gap between big screen cinema and home screen cinema a lot less yeah i think you made some great points and i think cinemas need to realize they need to be able to innovate and they need to be in a position to know what makes them good right so like you say there's there's nothing better than being in a full movie house watching a movie like interstellar and like being in that community environment where you're really getting sucked into an amazing piece of cinematography and an amazing story and they have to know what makes them different and not try and compete on things they aren't able to compete on I, I think they're in trouble. I think that cinemas are in trouble. I think they're in the same position that like a Kodak used to be in or yep. kind of a BlackBerry used to be in where their use case is slowly melting away mm-hmm. and they're going to have to innovate, I think, to be able to be relevant in a, in a future world. And so we, we've seen them increase their prices. They've gone to make it a more premium experience. They've made the, the seats much more luxurious. They've tried to bring like pizzas and all sorts of new things into that offering. But I think they need real innovation there. Yeah. Um, if they don't innovate, if they kind of hold on to what they've always done, I fear that in 10, 15 years, cinemas are nowhere near what they are today. Yeah, it's really interesting. And one of the things, uh, just to mention, Barry, this side in the UK that I know in South Africa doesn't have, is you can actually get a subscription service to a particular cinema chain, which allows you to go to unlimited movies. And so for me, um, that kind of innovation, which certainly is useful, and I know a lot of friends who have those kinds of subscriptions, where you know it's this sort of sunk cost, you know that it's happening, and you can go through and actually watch as many videos as you like every month. It guarantees them a, an income stream, and ultimately you're getting a fair amount of value from it that's really clever i, I think it's a great idea and um, i think that it encourages people then to go and see movies they might not have spent money on yeah. right and so maybe it, it it grows in them new appreciation for different types of movies uh, if you're paying for your movies and they're quite expensive you might only be going to see the big blockbusters that everyone is talking about but if you have a subscription you might be willing to 
take a chance on a more of an indie film or a smaller yeah. film. And that maybe allows like more production companies to be able to find an audience. So I think that's a really good idea. And it kind of fits the Netflix model that we all are so used to now. We're so used to paying a monthly subscription and getting access to a huge uh, swath of content. And so that's really interesting, Chad. It's a great example of the kind of innovation I like to see. But they need a lot more than that. Definitely. Completely agree with you there. Well, let's now move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. Develop and grow this week. We're going to start by chatting about self-help books. And uh, obviously, this is the part of the podcast we try and get better. We try and improve ourselves. We try and make sure we, we make any progress as a human being. And Chad, I've got a confession. I've got a big love-hate relationship with self-help books. Oh. I've read a lot of them. And I find <laughs> they are very valuable. Um, but there's a risk when you read too many of them that you never actually do anything. You never mm. get into action because you're always reading and reading and reading. And a lot of them kind of make you feel good in the moment. They yep. motivate you. They give you a good sense of what's going on. They give you a little bit of fire in the belly. But that can fade if you're not careful about actually implementing that advice. And so that's why I think it's a love-hate relationship. I know a lot of people who use self-help books as procrastination yep. or they use it as like a means of feeling some sort of progress even though nothing's actually changing. Yep. So I think I'm one of those people sometimes. I fall into that habit sometimes and into that kind of bad way of thinking. Yep. And I've been trying to figure out how do I get out of that? And one of the things I've really found in the last couple of weeks and last couple of months is that maybe if you're in that position where you feel like you've read all these books, but you haven't been able to really make a change or really make real progress, maybe it's worth switching to something else for a little bit and trying a different type of reading. Yep. And I would really recommend reading a novel, right? Finding some novel that you can really lose yourself in. Because what what most people don't realize about fiction and about really good fiction is that it actually is very powerful when it comes to self-help and kind of like moving yourself forward because you're living another life through a different character's eyes and if the writer is really good they're able to bring out some of those life lessons some of those morals some of that wisdom in a more indirect way right so instead of a chapter saying how to avoid distraction chad or how to get better sleep or how to improve your relationships which is very direct on the nose like everyone wants the five-step process they yep. want the the silver bullets when you read a novel you have to work a little bit for it and you have to invest yourself in the story and really try and be empathetic towards what that character is going through and living through their experience and sometimes you can find really amazing insights that you've actually worked for and actually more relevant maybe less direct but more relevant for your life by reading novels and so all i wanted to say chad was if you're feeling that self-help kind of fatigue i'll call it yep. Maybe go and try a novel. Try and find a great novel that really like fascinates you, whether it's a fantasy, whether it's historical fiction, whatever you like. Try a novel and see if maybe you can pull some insight and some wisdom from the characters in that novel, especially if it's a good one. Yeah, I'm completely guilty of that phenomenon, Barry, um, where you are reading and you feel so good in the moment and you're going to take on the world. But naturally, you've, you want to keep reading. So you're going to just keep reading the stuff and you don't get a time to debrief, consolidate uh, and actually take on the stuff that you've learned. And I find the exact same thing happens with people who watch motivational videos on, on YouTube. Um, and there's loads of those. You'll subscribe to a guy and he wakes up every morning and take on the world, you know, all of these great messages with this amazing voiceover. And ultimately, it's just that little flame that that tries to ignite something, but you can't rely on it. And, and I, I like that idea. Typically, I don't read novels. I've only ever read novels that were prescribed to me by school. Um, and so I really enjoyed some of those. One of the ones called Q&A, which was actually turned into a movie afterwards. Um, I've, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that book. But yet, for some strange reason, I rather just stick to the good old... I, I suppose I suppose it's because you, you kind of know what to expect with a self-help book sometimes. Um, where, as you said, a novel takes a bit more work and takes a little bit more of an investment and it, it could go either way so i like that idea and i think i actually need to listen to some of your advice there barry i think another key point there as well chaz what you picked up is that in the self-help genre we often are given these almost unrealistic standards like yeah. your morning routine's got to have 24 different things <laughs> you got to meditate for half an hour you got to run for two hours like it, it becomes a bit crazy and i don't think that's realistic i think a yeah. lot of those videos and a lot of those things are putting their best foot forward in a novel, you see much more nuance because when you're walking through the character, if it's a good writer, of course, like the, the books need to be good. But if they are good, you walk through the character and you see the nuance, you see the flaws, you see the difficulties. And it's a more realistic view, even if it might be said in a fantasy world. But the human experience is more realistic than a YouTube video which is showing a perfect morning routine or a perfect like product productivity masterclass. 
And so I'm not saying that either one is bad or good. I think they both have merits. But I just want to suggest if you've always read nonfiction, you kind of stick to that genre, give it a try. Find a novel yeah. that, that excites you. Try to get a recommendation from somebody else and, f- and just try a novel for once. And you might find a real breakthrough there just by being forced to, to deal with a nuanced character. And plus, it's fun. If you get a good story, yeah. it can really be a really immersive experience. Well, I am taking my very first step in, in one big leap, really, um, which is... I ordered the Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine novel that Barry Amazing. loved last Amazing. week. Um, so that's on its way. It'll be here in a couple of days. And yeah, certainly just taking that first step, I guess, which I'm sure I'll definitely enjoy. Now, the next one that I wanted to chat about while we're here in Develop and Grow, and I actually wanted to ask Barry about his thoughts, is my struggle with opportunity cost. Now, for those of you who don't know what opportunity cost is, obviously, depending on you know your field of studies, it would have been brought up at some stage uh, or not. But opportunity cost is essentially what is the cost of the next best option. So when you apply this to you know normal day to day stuff in your own life, that is well, what could I be doing now that's better than what I've currently chosen to do? And I literally mean it as simple as I have three hours to spare. Am I going to spend that three hours editing a YouTube video? Am I going to spend it reading a book? Am I going to spend it playing guitar? Am I going to spend it singing a song? And so I get in these random decision paralysis moments where I can't decide. And in the end, I actually end up wasting a whole bunch of time trying to decide what it is that I'm going to do. What do you think, Barry? Do you have any tips or or guides for me on this? Yeah, Chad, I think what you're describing is a very common problem, and I don't think I'm an expert by any means. Um, But I think the first thing that I would say is that the most important thing is, first of all, to be kind to ourselves and to allow the understanding that we are going to waste some time. Uh, I think that there's this pervasive idea in the productivity community that everyone is using all 24 hours and everything is is scheduled to the minutes. And if you're not doing that and if you're wasting time, then you're a failure. And that's not the case at all. And so the first thing that I try and think about is that I want to have a healthy balance in my life. I want to be able to waste time guilt-free every now and then. And so if you're able to get into that mode where you're like, I'm happy to sit on the couch and watch Netflix for a few hours if that's what I need. If I need that that kind of downtime to recharge and that's important where the tricky part comes in and where i think people struggle is when does that bleed into time that could be productive that you actually want to be spending productively so say chad you got that three hour gap and you decided cool i actually feel good i want to be able to use this productively then it comes down to prioritization yeah and it comes down to trying to understand what is urgent and what is important. And I think that's a key distinction. Often in, the, in that production downtime, we, we might take on the easy thing, like maybe the editing is relatively mindless yeah. or maybe the, the, the something is relatively mindless and it's an easy task. I know I can check it off the task list and so I do that instead of the important piece. Yeah. And maybe there's a more important, more difficult creative work that I really would love to do, but it's harder to start. And in my yeah. mind, trying to separate the important from the urgent is one of the, the biggest struggles in life because the urgent requires that you to do that, that that stuff in that time period whereas the important is potentially more viable for your longer term success but it's harder to do in that moment so i don't have any like pearls of wisdom beyond (laughs) be kind to yourself and realize that some time needs to be wasted in order to keep some sort of sanity right to think that you're going to be productive every single minute every single day is is not the case one suggestion i just thought of right now chad which might be helpful here have you ever done a time tracking exercise i think we've chatted about it once on the podcast before where you go through a week for example and you time track and you track every single thing that you do So you get a real sense of what your week looks like. The reason I think this is valuable is that I think a lot of us are very delusional about what we think we're spending time on and what we're actually spending time on. So you might ask me, Chad, what did you do today, Barry? And I'll say, oh, I was very productive, Chad. I did this and this and this and this and this. But in reality, what you'd find is I spent a lot of time procrastinating, a lot of time mm-hmm. farting around, a lot of time doing other stuff. And what the time checking exercise does for you is just help you realize what the true reality is. And once you have that true reality, you're in a better position to decide, okay, cool, how can I make better decisions? And so maybe my one suggestion would be to run a one-week experiment where you are like completely petty and pedantic about tracking every single minute of your day. Yeah. Then you get to the end of the week, you have that oh no moment where you realize, hold on, my week that I thought it was is very different to my actual week. And then you're able to make decisions from there. 
Does that make sense? That makes sense, and that's really interesting. I've never, I've never tried that. Just to answer your question, and it sounds interesting. It sounds valuable. Like you said, you, you sometimes look back just on the way that you feel, and in reality, uh, ultimately, you know, it's very, very different. I think the same thing can be said for a lot of people at work as well. I think a lot of people don't realize how much time they actually spend not directly working. Ultimately, we're not robots, and you know, we can't churn out 100% productivity all the time. And so I think it, it is good to to be aware of that. Um, and I certainly need to just be a little bit more kind on myself. And like you said, not worry about wasting time. Because I think when you look at this opportunity cost um, argument as a whole, the main driver of that is trying to eradicate waste. And, uh, you know, ultimately looking to, to do the thing that's going to give me the most value, whether it's now or in long term. And so that's great value there, Barry, and, and great comments. Thank you. It's a pleasure to do that. And, and it's, it's something we all struggle with. I think we have to... We have to value that waste of time in a weird way. We have to put some sort of value on that so we realize that it's needed for us. Yeah. And you'll, you'll know yourself better than anyone else. You know what kind of downtime you need. You know the kind of moments you need to take a rest. And so as long as you're not being delusional and you're being honest with yourself, um, you can actually put a little bit of value on that waste of time, which then fixes that opportunity cost calculation. And that's why I think the time tracking exercise is so valuable because you can get real data and you be honest with yourself. It's almost like when you're going on a diet and you want to start tracking your meals, or tracking your calories. <laughs> For the first few days, you get a real shock because you realize, oh, I was eating way more <laughs> calories than I thought. And that yeah. data allows you to make clever decisions. And so with any of these things, I really recommend track it first, get a real data, real numbers on what you're doing. Then you're in a much better position to make better choices. If you're kind of trying to make that choice from no data, you're just making up stuff. You don't actually know what the reality is. And so I really recommend it. It's, it's a bit petty. It takes a lot of work. <laughs> but for me, it was a real big eye-opener for me when I did it. Absolutely. Thanks, Barry. That's fantastic. What do you think? Do you struggle with opportunity cost paralysis? Um, is, is it a phenomenon that you've never thought about? But now that we've brought it up, uh, you resonate with? Do let us know. There's a link below in every single episode that you can just click on and send us a little voice note. We want to hear from you as well. Well, that brings us to the end of a jam-packed episode. I really, really enjoyed this one. It was a whole lot smoother than last week. <laughs> Definitely. It was a good episode this week. Uh, 27 was a good one. Uh, lots of interesting stuff, lots of tech and lots of talking about what's going on around the world. We really do enjoy it. And Chad, thank you for your time and thank you to the listeners. If you're listening to this point, you are a legend, you are a rock star, and we really appreciate you having you part of this journey. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. Pond across the